0: And welcome back to the Skinny Skinny It's the film podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine It's me Peter Simpson with Jamie Dunn Hello And Anahit Berries Hi We have a very in- what should be a very interesting show today It's a big Paul Verhoeven special for our sins <laughs> And for his And for his There's a clue to what's coming up later um, Yes, uh, Paul Verhoeven's new film Benedetta is out this week So we've all been watching that and we've also been taking a bit of a dive into Mr Verhoeven's sparkling back catalogue. <laughs> the sparkle is mostly blood. There's some glitter uh, and some other stuff as well that we'll get onto shortly. Um, so yeah, that's what's coming up in the rest of the show. But to start off, Anahit, what have you been watching recently?
1: So um, I finally watched Joe Wright's Cyrano, um, because it was very, very highly recommended to me by friends of the podcast hafa and carmen by which i mean they're my friends and they also write for the skinny um it was very very beautiful it is his best film i think since anna karenina which doesn't say a lot because all of the films in between have been fucking awful um but it is nice that he's kind of back it's yeah very gorgeous like this gorgeous soundtrack by the national who are one of my favorite bands so that was very good um And then I was writing a piece on Anya Taylor-Joy last week. So I ended up doing like little Anya Taylor-Joy marathon. Um, Watched The Witch for the first time, which I thought was, she was remarkable in it. I couldn't believe that she was only 19. Like it was such an assured performance. Um, And I rewatched Emma, which I don't know if you guys have seen Emma, but um, have you, no? I did
2: not see (gasps) it.
1: Oh, it's actually, this is the third time I've seen it and it's the first time that it's like properly clicked. Um, yeah, it's actually very good. It has like a real kind of personality behind it. It kind of does what Joe writes Pride and Prejudice does in that it's like very mucky and undignified in parts, which like goes against that sort of like very rarefied, like, oh, the Regency. Um, and yeah, she's just very good. She's very unlikable in it in a way that's actually meaningful. Cause I think often with women, you have like unlikable female characters and it just means they have a lot of sex. Whereas like she's actually being like, not nice and that's really interesting to watch um so yeah it was it was a good time she is great
0: good stuff
2: thank you (laughs) (laughs) uh jamie what have you been watching well i have been watching some tv controversially for a film podcast Uh, i've been watching euphoria um the sav sam levinson sort of teen drama um which i was really resistant to at first it kind of took me a couple of tries to get into it um I don't know, the first episode, it's, it's, it's really strange because it uses a lot of voiceover in montage, so it's not really a, a kind of normal TV show at all. Um, so you have to kind of get used to that. He's basically trying to be Scorsese, I think, is what he's trying to be, um, and kind of feeling a little bit. But I, I kind of got into it eventually, and I started to dig the style, um, because basically it's just a soapy teen melodrama like Dawson's Creek or The O.C. with a lot more sex and drugs, and filmed in a kind of really cinematic way. So I, I guess I just, I like the fact it's TV that's trying to be cinematic. Um, So I think that's kind of why I got on with it. And, I, and when it works, the episodes are great. There's a couple of absolutely fantastic episodes. Uh, a lot of them aren't. But yeah, uh, he just throws everything at the wall in terms of visuals. Uh, You know, there's a lot of kind of satire about kind of being a teen and there's a lot of kind of stuff about social media and not all of it sticks, but I think I like that he's attempting something. So yeah, I kind of, Despite myself, despite hating a lot of it, I actually enjoy that uh, <laughs> he's, he's attempting something. So it's
1: contrarian Jamie shit. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, so
2: it's like I'm at once dazzled by it, but also this is absolute <laughs> bullshit as well. Which is kind of how I feel about Verhoeven, actually. It's probably a good thing to start to talk about. When I'm thinking about it. But yeah, it's, it's kind of really soapy, really pulpy, kind of fun. <clears throat> yeah, I would recommend it, kind of, but with a pinch of salt as well. So. <laughs> so it's truly a nested take as well like
0: i don't like this except that i do but i don't like this guy i don't think he's very good except when he is but a lot of it isn't
2: well he's like super talented but also a bit high in his own supply at the same time you know he's like one of these i I, I actually suspect he might be brilliant in 10 years but right now he's just a little bit um up his own arse.
1: did you watch malcolm and marie
2: no i didn't watch that No, i
1: didn't either everyone said it was awful i just Life
2: short. I did kind of like Assassination Nation. Did you see that one? No,
1: uh, but I've had Oh, the one that's based on the Sarah No, uh, that's I'm, something else.
2: Oh, I'm not too sure. It's like a kind of. I guess it's, it's kind of similar to the plot of um, Euphoria It's about a, a, a town where everybody's social media gets released, or, oh. or, and it's like, uh, and it's how the, all the ramifications that so everyone can see your DMs and everyone can see what's oh been God, happening I mean, and what's up.
1: Fucking
2: um, And it becomes like a kind of revenge film in a way so it's, a, it's really stylish and cool again lots of great ideas but not all of them work so you know he's interesting um and then speaking of things that are about style where not all of it works
0: <laughs> uh, i watched the devil wears prada for the first time as part of my continuing run on this bit of the podcast of watching things that many other people have watched multiple times you've um, never
1: seen the devil wears Prada*? i'd never seen the
0: devil wears prada how
1: is that possible um how did you get this far
0: i don't know <laughs> mistakes were made <laughs> The main reason, well, the two reasons I ended up watching it is, one, uh, me and my partner got a PALS Disney Plus login. Disney, if you're listening... I got my own Disney Plus login, and um, the other one is we. I've been doing a rewatch of The Office, and I just around the house kept quoting the bit from The Office where Michael Scott walks in, having just he's been watching The Devil Wears Prada. He gets his Netflix delivered to the office and watches it in bits when things are slow. Yeah, and he
1: keeps throwing his blazer. Yeah, he keeps Pat. throwing the yeah. coat <laughs> across
0: the room. Um, so yeah, it was like it was one of these things where if you're going to keep quoting this takeoff of this film, you now have to watch it. <laughs> It's a good rule to have, I think. Um, I enjoyed it. I thought that it had the Coco Chanel thing of you should always take one quick cut montage off before you leave the house. Um, all the men are dreadful except for Stanley Tucci.
1: I actually, okay, are you one of these like, oh, the boyfriend was the villain? Or the- no,
0: no, he's not the villain. Okay. Oh, God, no. Meryl Streep's dreadful. Okay. She's the villain. Okay. He, he's He's just an idiot. I he's just a bit of, socially and emotionally inept.
1: I feel I am more on his side than most people. Because I feel if my girlfriend slash boyfriend uh, missed my birthday, I would also be grumpy and sad. Oh, yeah. No,
0: he's right to be annoyed about that. Yeah. Um,
1: I don't know. I feel bad for him. But the, I don't know why. <laughs> Out of everyone in that film. I think it's just that the discourse like took off so much that now I'm like, no, boyfriend's right. Which yeah. is actually a pretty bad take. As a general rule, to
0: have yeah, and it also kind of went hand in hand with the thing of like Meryl Streep is simply a girl boss who who belittles her staff to the point of them having in having a breakdown or encouraging them to be hit by a taxi. She was in that
2: taxi. (laughs) We'll cut that out. But can we agree the best character is Emily Blunt? She's like oh yeah, she rules it. Yeah, she is very good.
1: Yeah, it's like not surprising that that launched her whole career, and I wish she'd done more like that. Because that I think is like her defining performance mm. ever. And she's never really gone back to that sort of thing. And she mm. was so good.
2: It's still timely yet. <laughs> she's an action lady who like kicks aliens' ass and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. But mm. she's also good at it. She's good at it. Yeah. Yeah. She's
0: just go back and get revenge on Meryl Streep.
1: <gasps> yes.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the devil was Prada too. Devil Harder. <laughs> be great.
2: Yeah. I've also seen the office crossover where John Krasinski is obviously her other half. Oh yeah. Well there's the whole story, is there not that he like watched the he
0: was like obsessively watching The Devil Wears Prada um, when he and then he was like, Oh I've got to meet Emily Blunt oh, that's And that's cute. how they got together.
1: That's really nice.
0: Yeah.
1: That's like big wife guy energy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> My god.
0: I'm a big
2: wife guy, I just need the wife. <laughs> Currently, I'm just a big guy. <laughs> And it's her sister, not married to Stanley Tucci, as well. I believe. Yes, yeah, so yeah It yeah, like yeah. all comes together. Yeah, yeah. an bring, iconic film. Yeah, bringing <laughs> two families together. It's beautiful. Yes, it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, let me set the scene. It's Renaissance Tuscany. Benedetta is a nun at the convent in Pescia, where she has been having some religious slash erotic visions. She then ends up in a kind of passionate affair with Bartolomea, who is a recent arrival at the convent. Felicita, who is the abbess and chief of all the nuns, isn't happy. And then Benedetta's sexy slash religious visions start manifesting physically, and things get extremely, almost dangerously melodramatic. (laughs) Um, Anahit, what did you think?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, this film this film is certainly a film um it was (laughs) actually my first Verhoeven um I watched it at GFF and I think I was expecting something like really polished and like quote-unquote serious cinema um and actually this film is demented and it turns out that all of his films are demented I just didn't know that I really thought that I was like oh I've never seen a Verhoeven film and I'm missing out on like yeah it's going to be like really serious and really like whatever and no, like his films are insane like they're actually insane Um, this film feels like a more grown up version of the Da Vinci Code in a lot of ways in that like provocation and annoying the Catholic Church seems to be the whole point that this film was made and that's okay maybe that's okay, maybe that's what cinema is about and that's fine Um, there's this one scene in it that I think kind of sums up This whole approach, which is, um, so yeah, Benedetta, Bartolomea are kind of having this affair, um, and they make very, very creative use of a Virgin Mary statue that involves quite a lot of carving and inserting in places. And there's this like very meticulously designed and utterly wild sound design, which can only be described as squelching (laughs) that is like happening. (laughs) over this scene and i think yeah it just sums up his whole approach in that it's incredibly heretic and entirely ludicrous but it's also like quite deliberate and knowing in the midst of the craziness and he's like using this stuff as a tool to talk about like the hypocrisy of faith and like desire and all of these things um I think it's my favourite Verhoeven of the ones that I've seen, um, which doesn't say a lot because I've seen three and I didn't like one of them. Um, And I think that's purely because it looks very good. So, like, the first scene especially, like, they're wearing all these Renaissance gowns and it's just so lush. um, And it's just nice to have a film that looks nice, which, like, a lot of his other films don't seem to do. And, yeah, I guess, like, one thing you can say for the Catholics... And Italy is a the aesthetic is always on point and he does like make very good use of that. So yeah, it's it's a fucking weird film. <laughs> it's not what I expected at all. Like at all? I mean, you've seen more heaven than me, Jamie. Was it more? Well, were you
2: prepared? I, I, I was kind of prepared. I would say, actually, if anything, I think it's kind of a tame Farhaven <laughs> <laughs> from, from where I come from. But I guess what I like about Farhaven the most is like you always get a sense of him behind the camera. You always, I always kind of picture him like giggling at this <laughs> the ridiculous thing he's put on screen, and yeah, that's a big part of watching his films. I think is trying to kind of clue into what he's. If he, is he? being serious, basically, is, you know, are you on his wavelength? Because um, his films are so layered with, like, you know... he ha- He's one of these people who's never really made a comedy, but all his films are incredibly funny because they're just layered with so much irony and sarcasm. Um, and that's certainly here in Benedetta. Because um, it is, like, a, it is, yeah, I think he is trying to genuinely probe religion and faith. I think he is sort of trying to make some serious things, but also uh, or make some serious points, but on the other hand, it's a daft erotic lesbian nun movie, which gives you all the TNA you'd expect from that genre. But on top of that, it's full of these kind of blasphemous gags about uh, you know, mother, uh, you know, the virgin Mary being whittled into a. Uh, erotic device And uh <laughs> device. and uh, you know it's got scatological humour good and, catch there to make sure this one doesn't get
0: taken down <laughs> on Spotify yeah but, what, what terminology can I use to make sure that I, do, I don't get an email first thing on Thursday morning we will not flag
1: this episode as
0: explicit
2: <laughs> but like, all, you are all on your own <laughs> but you know it's all that but also it opens with like three like poo gags you know there's like it opens with Sunday a bird shits in their eye. There's a, a jester who's lighting his farts, and then there's a scene with two nuns going for a poo together. And that's like <laughs> that's how they, that's the meat cute of the film. And it's like, yeah, who else opens a film with three poo gags? I just love that. So he, <laughs> he, you know, he loves to have his cake and eat it. So he, he loves to play with this idea that Benedetta might be a saint, and he takes that idea seriously. Uh, but he also suggests that this spiritual awakening might be a sexual awakening, and that's what's causing it. Um, and I think, uh, is it Virginie Ephra? Um, yes, I think so. Who plays Benedetta? She's really good because she never really gives the game away. So while you've got Verhoven is sort of being very playful and mischievous, I think she's been very, she's taken it very seriously. And I never got the any winks from her about whether I'm meant to believe like she's really having a religious conversion or if she is faking it all. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. Yes, yeah, so initially her, 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 visions of Jesus are kind of quite quaint, you know, it's like the idea, oh Jesus uh, Jesus is on the mound and he's saying, he's going to, you know, please marry me you know, you're, you're brilliant, but then it becomes it becomes increasingly behoven like so it becomes like B-movie uh, like sort of porn basically, where Jesus is like murdering snakes and sort of <laughs> riding a horseback, killing rapists, and then Jesus might be the rapist, so it's hugely blasphemous but also very funny, um, and I love all that, I love that he's just sort of poking the stick at religious zealots, um, but also also actually making quite a serious movie about religion at the same time, and I don't know if there's that many people who can sort of walk that line like he does. yeah um, It's so melodramatic, <laughs> I
0: loved it. I mean, I think one of the things about it is it's is filled with these little moments of kind of like melodrama and camp, there's the bit towards the start where they're putting on a play in the convent and everyone, all the background nun actors are all just dressed as various, various of the disciples. Some of them have like fake beards on and it's very kind of like chef kiss Monty Python kind of situation. Um... Jacopa, who is one of the senior sisters in the convent, has a scene at the start of the film which is entirely told in foreboding metaphors that later turn out to be relevant to the plot. It's just incredible. It's one of those, like, again, a very kind of like B-movie thing where you maybe put one of these lines about, well, sometimes our bodies are the things that deceive us the most. But instead of having real dialogue around that. You just have more of those lines (laughs) while you're walking through this like dark uh, back passage of this, yeah, Renaissance convent. I like Jesus as a swashbuckling like d'Artagnan just (laughs) just turning up with his big long curly hair and his goatee beating the shit out of people. I think as well that something's really good about the way that it's very contained within this little fort up at the top of the hill. So like it gives you this thing that there's this pressure being built up. And again, it plays with this idea of like you can't some filmmakers would would hint at the idea that this was a kind of a group delusion based on you know everyone being very closely contained together. And I think, yeah, the way that it sort of suggests that it could be one of a number of different things or none of those things. Means that when the tension eventually kind of like bursts out and the large, like the wider world of that bit of Italy starts to get involved, things have already reached a point where I don't want to spoil the ending, but fucking hell! (laughs) (laughs) Think of, have a think at home. What do you think the ending of the film we've just described would be? It's that, but with loads more bits as well. (laughs)
2: No. My favourite card was Charlotte Rampling, I don't know. Yeah, she is correct. Uh, she's like, she plays the the, uh, the kind of mother superior, I guess, of the Abbey. And she's really interesting. Cause she's agnostic. Like this, is, she's a woman who's devoted her life to God, yet she isn't really a believer. Um, she even has a line, "I may, it may be, well, when she's talking about religion, she says, it may be vain and hopeless, but I've devoted my life to it. So that's why I do it. And I, I start to see her as kind of the Verhoeven stand-in. You know, because I, I guess Verhoeven is a bit like that. Verhoeven's a really interesting guy who's written books about Jesus. He's wanted to make books, uh, a, a film about Jesus for years, and I guess this is maybe his version of it. Um, and all his films have like religious imagery involved somehow. Um, yet he doesn't seem to be religious at all. He seems to be a man of science. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he's sort of yeah this kind of fallen Catholic who has sort of been working through that all the uh, you know, all his career. Um, so yeah, that was very interesting that she's like, she is like his stand-in and she gets all the best lines, you know, she's very dry. And she even has like a very moving moment as well. Like she, she's a great actor who can do it all really.
1: So, yeah, because yeah. it's like, it is about religion, but really it's about power and it kind of fits into the rest of his kind of canon. Um, like, you know, I mean, we'll talk about Robocop in a bit, but that kind of post-Reagan sort of series of films that he made. Um, in the I think yeah he's really interested in how power works and that's why it has like such an erotic component to it because it's like power in all of these different ways um, and I like that for all of the yeah like the imagery and the iconography and kind of completely taking the piss out of the church he's less interested in it as like this kind of ideological thing as an inst- or, but more as an institution and as like a structure of power which i think he is very good at dismantling that sort of thing
0: yeah and there's also a thing that within that kind of institution it's this idea that people don't want to be proven wrong because it would undo their place Mm. in the pecking order but they're almost more more concerned that somebody else might be proven right can't remember the actor's name he's the merovingian in the matrix sequels (laughs) deep cut there um (laughs) Is this the
2: papal nuncio?
0: Yeah, Yeah. this is the nuncio from Florence and he's Uh, just, yeah, yeah, he kind of typifies the sort of more vindictive side of just not wanting to be proven wrong because the whole thing of Benedetta having visions of Jesus nobody, even though this is a nun in a convent, everyone's like, ah, bollocks, you haven't seen shit (laughs) 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 because Charlotte Ramlin's like, you're ruining my Airbnb with your... (laughs) I'm just trying to run a quaint Tuscan villa here, and you're right here talking about how you've seen Jesus. Well, I love all that as well. There's a
2: lot of the, the capitalism of the church and how yeah. how that's a money making racket, basically, um, which he's obviously interested in. There's the hypocrisy because the, the people uh, Nuncio has got this young woman pregnant who's walking around showing off her breast milk. You know, it's like it's he's it's it's, it's it's he's taken taken it all down and he loves kind of dealing with like you know, whether it's the military and, like, uh, Stashic Troopers or the, you know, the police force or just capitalism in general. He loves to kind of rip apart these kind of structures that we have. And, yeah, religion is, gets it here.
0: Yeah.
2: And also there's a comet. Oh,
1: yeah. There
0: is at one point an enormous glowing red comet.
1: Yeah, it's lush. Like, the cinematography of this film is really... Which again feels like it's almost taking the piss. Because yes. it is itself the cinematography is so serious. Like it feels like one of these like medieval Renaissance paintings, and then what's happening on screen is patently ludicrous. Yes. And yeah, I love that. I love that contrast.
0: It is to use a quasi-religious metaphor, campus Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and also in one final flourish, it is out in the UK this Friday, Good Friday.
2: Oh my god. <laughs> Slam dunk. <laughs>
0: So, yes, Benedetta is out in UK cinemas on Good Friday. That's going to annoy some people. Um, And it's on movie from the 1st of July. Okay, so that was Benedetta. uh, And in honour of the big man, uh, we thought we'd have a look back through some of his back catalogue. Some of us are very familiar with it. I.e., me and Jamie never stopped talking about Robocop. Uh, Anna Heat was less familiar with it. So we've each kind of gone through and had a look at some of his work to try and answer the question, is Paul Verhoeven a visionary auteur? Is Paul Verhoeven an extremely bold and troublemaking satirist? Is Paul Verhoeven a deeply odd and very horny grandpa? <laughs> is Paul Verhoeven some combination of the above? Uh, so, James I suppose we'll come to you first. Paul Verhoeven, Dutch filmmaker who kind of came to Hollywood in the mid-1980s, but I believe you can kind of fill us in a little bit on his kind of Background and some of his earlier kind of films that will hopefully partially explain some of what is about to come.
2: Yeah, Roquefort made, made him famous in Hollywood, but he yeah. was a massive director in the Netherlands. Like, um, I think two of his films were the top, or still are perhaps the top, grossing Dutch films of all time. Uh, they like broke. I think that, like, they broke records. Like, like you know, Gone with the Wind got smashed. You know, like in terms of people watching it. I think at one point, like half of the country had seen Turkish Delight, which is his first major hit. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's it's a really romantic melodrama. It's not the kind of film you'd imagine to be uh, Paul Verhoeven's first hit, but it's uh, it's about a sculpture who's looking back on his life. Um, but it's got all the kind of usual things you'd expect from, from Verhoeven. Um, you know, it's, it's about sexuality, it's how, how sex is intertwined with death, um, you know there's religious imagery running through it um, but it's really tender and funny and it's got lots of shit and maggots and rape as well so it's like, it's, that, it's got all those jarring elements you expect from a Marvel film you know um, I think what might surprise people who haven't seen those early films and I think they're really ripe for rediscovery because they're quite hard to come across is just how varied they were so he's made um, war films he made a, a film called Soulage of Orange which was about a group of friends uh, in World War II which is a bit more straight-laced compared to his later films, but it has all the kind of anti-war stuff that that crops up again in um, Starship Troopers. Uh, He got in big trouble because he made a very horny teen coming-of-age film called Splitters, which is about these three biker friends who get bored in the suburbs and get into all sorts of mischief uh, and then start to fight over a girl and it's about kind of homosexuality and religion and and all sorts again. Um... And supposedly, Steven Spielberg saw this film and was so disgusted by it that he convinced George Lucas not to hire him for Return of the Jedi. That is
1: so petty.
2: So, so, you know, we could have had...
0: Oh, Oh, that scene scene with the Ewoks on Endor would have a completely different...
2: Just get him in just to do that. Exactly. So so Steven Spielberg put a kibosh on that. Um, My favourite of his Dutch films is probably The Fourth Man, which is just a really over-the-top... Um, sexual cycle thriller, um, which is basically kind of proto basic instinct. Like a lot of the images sort of reappear um later on in that. Um, so he's had a hugely varied career before he came before Hollywood came calling. So like uh, he also before he actually went to Hollywood property did make an English language film, uh, Flesh and Blood, which is a kind of medieval romp, um, which is very sleazy and nasty and disturbing, and it was kind of a a bomb actually. And after that, and Splitters, which got really criticised by the critics, um, he kind of found it hard to get money in Holland, uh, in the Netherlands, sorry. Um, And then that's sort of what pushed him um, to America. And then obviously Robocop was massive and he had a kind of 10-year period there where he was the king. And then he had a couple of uh, stinkers, um, or a couple of, I wouldn't say stinkers, he had a couple of box office bombs in terms of showgirls. And the Hollow Man, and that brought him back to Europe with um, Black Book yeah. and L, where he's been working ever since. Yeah. So he he comes over from the from Europe
0: uh, because of a lack of money into America in the nineteen late nineteen eighties, which was basically all about money. And in a ten year span between nineteen eighty seven and nineteen ninety seven, he makes RoboCop, Total Recall, Basic Instinct. Showgirls, and Starship Troopers, which are all kind of varying shades and levels of success, I would say, of a satire about, basically, America in the years post-Reagan, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, like you say, probably best known for Robocop, which is coincidentally getting a kind of Director's Cut re-release in May because it's 35 years since it came out. And Director's Cut, in this case, is probably code for extremely violent because Robocop is was kind of an introduction to this idea that Paul Verhoeven is the patron saint of people who want to have their cake and eat it too. Like, his films are not bloodbaths. They're satire. It just so happens that there are, like, people literally dissolving on screen in front (laughs) of you (laughs) or being machine-gunned repeatedly. So, Annie, you had never seen RoboCop until we gave you this, (laughs) I would argue, cursed task. Um, What did you think?
1: What did I think? So I think Robocop is, like, an example of a film where, like, I didn't watch it in time before, like, all of the parodies and, like, its cultural residue, like, properly sunk in, and so the whole time that I was watching it, all I could think of was them, and particularly all I could think of was um, Kick Puncher from Community like have you seen community i've seen
0: some of community but i'm not aware of kick puncher
1: so it's like this film that troy and arved are like obsessed with like this series of films and it's a man whose like punches are as strong as his kicks and it's like a take on robocop like it's a kind of satire of that and there's this line towards the end where he's like please call me david (laughs) and so when like the robocop does kind of a similar thing and he's like my name is murphy i was like man no Like, I can't do this. So, yeah, like, it was really hard to take it seriously. Um, I think it's one of those films that I enjoy thinking about it and reading about it more than I enjoyed watching it. Like, I thought it was kind of boring and kind of janky the whole way through. But I think, like, its overall premise and, like you say, the way that it fits into, like, a post-Reagan politics, that's really interesting. That kind of critique of the militarization and corporatization of the police, I think, is creatively if not uh like sanely examined um i think it did have like a little bit of a like not all cops vibe which i don't know I, I i don't know what i thought of that um and i think it also did what like batman does in that it didn't really examine the root of crime like it still had this kind of like crime as this nebulous idea and like fighting crime as this kind of broad sweep and obviously it does like focus on um like the heads like structures of the police and so like I'm not saying it is like secretly like a very liberal conservative film but it just did have that kind of chasing down criminals kind of thing um which I think particularly given that it is like this post Reagan film and Reagan was a man who did quite frankly the most in terms of like criminalizing communities I don't know it just felt like a little bit reductive um but yeah, like, it w- It was interesting. It was just really fucking weird. <laughs> it was really bizarre. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It just very... Uh, I couldn't get into it. Like, it just felt like... Like, satire of itself. It felt artificial the whole way through. Which maybe that's the point. I don't know. You guys loved it, so maybe you should...
2: <laughs> well, I
1: find
2: something. I, Go for it. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure... The criminals are the bad guys.
1: No, I don't think yeah. they are the bad guys. Like, like I said, like I think his politics is right. I just think it did kind of do. It, it didn't properly like hone in on that in a way that I think I would have found like more yes. interesting. But when you say it,
2: when you say it doesn't examine the causes of crime, it literally says crime is being caused by the capitalists who want to clear out Detroit, and and they are they are sort of helping. They're bringing the drugs in to like sort of yeah. bring up like, lower property prices and things like that. So it's literally saying that the capitalists are causing crime, which I thought is, you know, pretty explicit, I would say. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's one of these films where I, I've i sort of changed with it over the years as I've gotten older. Because when I first watched it, I was, like, way too young. I, I don't know if you, Peter, but I, I was, like, so young that I remember wanting to have a Robocop action figure. And my mum wouldn't buy me it. This is how young I was. I was like, I was probably ten or something. And at the, at the time, I just thought, oh, this is cool. There's lots of action. It's about a cop who who's cleaned up the streets. I I loved all that. But obviously, over the like, as I watched it again, I realised it's actually it's a critique of capitalism. Um, it's a critique of the militarisation of the police. Um, and then, as as I've watched more Verhoeven films, I realized i I've started to see it more as a kind of religious film. Like, uh, and I'm not the first person to say this, so don't laugh at me. But think of it this way, that Murphy is Christ. He's crucified. If you think of how he's killed, how do they kill him? They shoot off his hand, stigmata, and he's res- <laughs> and he's resurrected as a robocop. And I think that is not a crazy reading, given how much we know that Verhoeven is obsessed with Jesus and it crops up a lot in his films. Um, but yeah, I think it stood the test of the time because it's quite different from a Hollywood film. I love how it just starts with these television news reports and adverts as a way of kind of dumping information, it tells it's, it's building the world um, by just telling us what, what the world is, which is very good storytelling, but it's just so unusual for a Hollywood movie to do that. It's like, you know, I guess at the time it was very jarring to see a film open like that. Um, but it also sets up all the targets for satire that we're going to see throughout the film. So privatization, corporate America, greed, uh, you know, like I say, um, the police force and how it's been sort of privatized. Um, so yeah, I love all that, and it's, it's you know he obviously I, I don't think he's done that before in his Dutch films, but he did kind of carry on throughout um, things like Total Recall and Starship Troopers. It's a you know a trope that um, and a lot of people have copied over the years. You know, um, there are so many screens in those. Paul Verhoeven films, and they often have stuff
0: on them that is kind of coded as no one could ever take this shit seriously. Like the whole I'd buy that for a dollar thing, or like when Arnold Schwarzenegger is leaving messages for himself in Total Recall, or the kind of like recruitment ads for joining this like global military in Starship Troopers. It's this kind of like I think that when I was going back through thinking about Paul Verhoeven's work, it's simultaneously subtle and blunt force satire. It's someone who will like walk you right up to the door. Point at the door, nod at the door, and then like do a roundhouse kick and kick the door off its hinges, and then just start punching anyone inside. Like he has this combination of try of like thematic, um, yeah, thematic reference to things like yeah, corporatization, privatisation, uh, whether it's actually good to have these big institutions that do all this damage and say that they're doing it for good reasons, but then it'll also just be like completely hog-wild nonsense, kind of like on the next layer up in the satire strata. <laughs> it doesn't work on a podcast. I'm making kind of gesture like different <laughs> layers of rock. Um, I think another thing that's really interesting, like Robocop is a good example of this, is that sort of a lot of his films point out the hypocrisy of Hollywood filmmaking and also like the hypo- hypocrisy that audiences sometimes have like you can't have a film about the corruption of policing and the kind of violence that's inherent in that and then kind of complain that it's too violent. Um, his films often use kind of like violence and sex and other kind of taboo subjects in a really deliberately over-the-top way where it takes it beyond being kind of like exciting and titillating and beyond being kind of like unpleasant and just into a kind of slapstick farce. Like Some of the, and I'm sure i Read a piece where he was, where Paul Verhoeven was talking about some of the cuts that they made when Robocop first came out. And he was complaining that it took scenes where someone was being shot to bits and took it away from being kind of like a satire on this is the kind of thing that you see in Hollywood films, let's push it a little bit further. And by pulling it back a little bit, it almost makes it worse. It's not obvious that it's supposed to be, you know, this is supposed to be a piss take on this kind of filmmaking.
2: Yeah. Well, funny though, I don't see that as a piss take though, because certainly the first big violent set piece where Ed 309. Is that, is it, is that Ed right? 209. No, Ed 209, sorry. Uh, wait, I, I knew that was wrong. When Ed 209. Respect, respect the man <laughs> slash extremely top heavy robot. <laughs> I'll start, yeah. <here>. Um, <laughs> the, the, first, the first big set piece, the first big violent set piece where Ed 209 is in the boardroom Mm -hmm. and he takes out that guy. That's played for comedy. It's the most ridiculous, over-the-top murder you're ever going to see. And there's a scene where he shouts, call a medic! When the guy's (laughs) been blown to pieces. Right? He's he's telling, he's, he's making fun. But then, the next scene, we have Murphy, a character who I've just met who we realizes he we realize he's got a kid. He's a nice guy. He, you know, he's taught his son how to like spin a gun. You know, he's like a he's a lovely fellow. You know, he's going to be the hero, and then he's shot to pieces in the most brutal way possible. And I remember seeing that and being so shocked by how gross and how violent it is. And he's not playing that scene for laughs. That is so visceral. And hmm. um, you know, c- comparing the two scenes side by side, I watched it again last night and I saw them side by side. And I, I realized ah, he's saying this is this is what Hollywood wants. Violence to be this kind of over the top, daft cartoon thing, mm. but actually this was what it is. It's 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 um, you know it's, it's bloody, it's visceral, and it's shocking. And it's it's kind of annoying that's the bit they take out because that's the bit that's actually anti-violent. That's saying this is what violence is and it's horrible. Really, what they should take out is the cartoon violence if they're worried about desensitising people. So it's 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 sometimes I think the you know the people who. Decide what what's good violence and what's bad violence. I've got it all the way around. The, the most shocking violence is the one you should keep in because that's the one that really makes you realize actually this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, unacceptable. You know, yeah. Um,
1: on the Wikipedia page <laughs> for RoboCop, apparently the one, the guy, the boardroom guy that's like shot up, the one that's played for laughs. Uh, apparently he was covered in over two hundred squibs, which I think is like.
2: Like yeah, a lot exploding. And, yeah,
1: yeah. And as well as plastic bags filled with spaghetti squash and fake blood. So that's how that was done.
2: <laughs> yeah, genius. <laughs> yeah, the tricky thing. Like I, I do love. but the tricky thing is, and I will admit, his attitudes and sense of humour can sometimes be a bit gross. Mm. You know, um, for example, the scene that I always find tricky is the scene where Robocop saves the woman from being sexually assaulted. It's when he's just first put out, and he's like, he's doing all these cry. Uh, he's doing all these kind of uh, rescues. And it's it, this woman who's gonna be sexually assaulted in an alley and roll Cop like shoots the guy in the dick basically through the woman's dress. And it's meant to be a joke, but it's like it's just like icky, okay, you know, it's like yeah. um it's like it's, it's sometimes his sense of humour goes too far, I think. And it's 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 kind of childish. That's the thing he's he's this guy who's really clearly really smart and clearly well read and knows a lot about like you say, the structures, and he's looked at America, he's came over from Europe, looked at America, he saw everything that's wrong with it, and he's put it on screen for 10, for 10, 10 years. But he also has a really childish, adolescent sense of humour um, to go with it, and that sometimes rubs me up the wrong way, even though I really enjoy his films. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that was why I liked Benedetta potentially the most of the ones that I've seen, and it did feel like the women were in on the joke. Um, and yeah, Robocop, and then like Basic Instinct, which is the other one that I saw, um, yeah, like you say, they both have, like, this quite horrible sexual assault rape scene in them. Um, and it's just very boring, I think, when that's used as, like, a coda for a particular kind of depravity or violence. Um, whereas, like, Vendetta obviously there's, like, very fucked up things, but there's just something about it being mostly women in the space that it kind of feels like yeah that sort of power thing and that yeah like adolescent and quite like simplistic take on violence like in that very particular kind of sexual violence um yeah i i kind of managed to like connect with it more i guess
0: but it's maybe worth talking a little bit about basic instinct um just the way that that kind of fits in with because a lot of his other films from around this time are very kind of like shouty shouty shooty shooty Mm -hmm. bang bang um but this film is very different from that
1: yes so it is very much like an erotic thriller um and I think actually maybe the most interesting thing about Verhoeven is how very specifically generic his films are while still having this very like clear through line um of this sort of anti-capitalist um anti yeah like American corporatization like bent but they do it within very particular genres and yeah this is very much like an erotic thriller um which is yeah really interesting i think it's tied with vendetta is my favorite which i think basically means i didn't like (laughs) robocock i don't know if that really says all that much um and it's most interesting i think as a take on the hitchcockian thriller um and especially like the hitchcock blonde so in this film sharon stone plays a author um who her boyfriend um, slash not really her boyfriend, the guy that she describes as the guy that she was fucking, um, has been murdered in a scene that we see at the beginning, but we don't see who has done it. Like we don't see the face, but we see him having sex with someone and then that person, that woman killing him. Um, And she plays, you know, kind of like the primary suspect. And then Michael Douglas's cop character is like investigating the crime, becomes like very obsessed with her. And yeah, I think the kind of Hitchcock blonde and just generally like the femme fatale trope is so often tied up in ideas of like male voyeurism and male power. And here, there is like a certain sense that she is looking back and that she is dominant throughout the story in ways that are, yeah, feel quite reformative. I think I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed watching her, and I don't think I'd seen Sharon Stone much before. Um, And I thought she was great um Again, I think it's possibly a film I find more interesting in the aftermath of it rather than while watching it. So, apparently, Michael Douglas has said in interviews that one of the reasons he was really drawn to it was he felt that sex scenes were becoming kind of a thing of the past because of the AIDS crisis. And I think it's really interesting as a film made in a time of like very particular moral panic it refuses to kind of sanitize desire and the danger of sex and it feels groundbreaking in that way and especially these days when there are continued discourse about like sex scenes and what place they have in cinema I think kind of like you were saying with like the whole violence thing the fact that sex does have it has a very specific role that it plays in cinema and it can speak to kind of you know ideas of intimacy but it can also speak to power in very particular ways and being explicit isn't Purely titillating. Um, so, yeah, I like this one more.
2: <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, he's sometimes one of these directors who gets called a misogynist, I think, mm. just because of, because he does have, actually have sort of a weird obsession with rape and it mm. comes up a lot in his films. But one thing I'll say is his female characters are always a lot more interesting than the male characters. Yeah. You know, if you look at Basic Instinct, for example, Michael Douglas is not an appealing character. He's like, he's the hero, mm. ostensibly, but he's gross. And you know, uh, Shanstone's character is much more appealing in terms of you know, just much more charismatic actor, but also her, her character is much wittier. She, you know, the, yeah, the idea that she's much smarter than him she's she, you know she's one step ahead of everyone. Yeah, um, and and that comes up you know, total recall as well. Great female characters, even RoboCop. You know, Nancy Allen I think is a good character. She's like sort of tough cop, and you know, all you know. I guess she's maybe one of these not all cops, but she's a really interesting character. So like. Um, yeah, I think that's something you can say about his films. You know, something like L. I don't know if you've seen that, but um, I, would, I would really recommend it. That's Isabelle Huppert. You know, he, he, he does like strong women. Um, and that's, it's just one, he's just so, he's just full of so many contradictions, you know, like he's a he's a director who, yeah, he he sometimes seems a bit naive almost in the, the way his treatment of uh, women's suffering. But then he also writes really interesting nuanced uh characters or or or, or certainly directs women to to give them great performances so yeah he's an he's an interesting guy
1: and i think that contradiction is in the film itself right because yeah you're right like michael douglas is structurally within the narrative meant to be the hero and she's meant to be maybe the villain maybe not we're not sure if she's done it like and that's kind of you know the whole premise um but he is very much the villain and he is kind of playing it as the villain like he's gross and he's looming and he's violent and he's yeah that particular kind of rape scene um which is just really hard to watch um and then she is yeah like you say there's a kind of almost vulnerability to her but not a vulnerability to him but she kind of has that complexity within her character that makes her the character that you're drawn to and makes her sort of like the quote-unquote hero of the piece, and I like that sort of, like, inherent tension in it. Um, I will say, yeah, like, thinking about him, like, particularly as a director and how he does this stuff, there's obviously... So basic instinct is known as the film with, like, the quote-unquote money shot, which is in the interrogation scene when she's first brought into the police station to ask her, like, did you do this crime? Um, And she's wearing, like, a white dress and no underwear, and there's this, like, blink-and-you'll-miss-it shot where she um uncrosses her legs and you can see like all the way basically up inside her um and there are like all sorts of things about like the making of that scene where apparently she didn't know it was going to be happening and he says that she did know and apparently she like when she first saw like the first test audience thing she slapped him which like good for her um and so there is inbuilt into his films and into his filmmaking style really similar to Hitchcock actually I think um this kind of underlying weirdness and maybe not okayness that i think i i don't think it's worth good cinema but i think you can see it kind of come through if that makes sense um yeah it it is it's an odd it is an odd film but yeah i think interesting as a film that kind of did something for how sex is depicted
0: Another interesting thing when you look at some of these films together is you see there's this kind of recurring like the Paul Verhoeven rep company of <laughs> actors who keep turning up so Sharon Stone turns up in Total Recall as does Ronnie Cox who played Dick Jones, the baddie in Robocop and is, uh, plays Cohagen the governor of Mars and a shit uh, in Total Recall and uh, Michael Ironside who later turns up in Starship Troopers turns up in Total Recall uh, which is incredibly camp Really interesting visually. It almost feels like if Paul Verhoeven tried to make like Flash Gordon. It's like it's very colourful and um, like visually interesting. So the, the premise is that Arnold Schwarzenegger's character is uh, kind of down about his life and wants to have an experience, have a bit of an adventure. So he goes to this place called Recall where they can implant memories in your head. So it's based on a Philip K. Dick short story. Uh, and he, he wants to have a memory of something interesting happening to him. But then it turns out that actually something interesting has happened to him. And that he's like a secret agent working with the Mars resistance. So then he has this (laughs) iconic moment where he tells himself through a video of himself that he has to get his ass to Mars. So then he goes to Mars and he meets various kind of Martians, uh, Martians, um, humans living on Mars who have been kind of mutated by the very kind of corrupt way that natural resources are kind of divvied up by the capitalists on Mars. Uh, he meets some, like, talking taxi cabs. He meets a variety of, like, a nested variety of baddies. The leader of the Mars Resistance isn't who you think it is. It's actually another smaller person uh, growing out of the belly of the person that you think is the leader of the Mars Resistance. It's incredibly, like, camp and weird. And the thing that's really interesting about it to watch, like... Obviously, Arnie is an incredibly like charismatic lump who just runs around deadpanning absolutely everything. Special effects and makeup are so kind of overblown. There's scenes where like people get out into the Martian atmosphere and their eyes are literally like popping out of their heads. But when you see this premise remade with Colin Farrell in like the 2010s, they make it really grey and kind of like really pseudo-realistic um and they take the same thing of like, oh, but what if you had a memory implanted in your head and then that memory wasn't actually... was You didn't need that memory because you had an actual memory. It's like, no one is going to confuse this like sci-fi for anything that is real or realistic. And with Total Recall, Paul Verhoeven goes, no one's going to confuse this for anything real, so let's have a bit of fun with it. Um, there is also some like slightly... There are some strong female characters, there's also the scene that everybody always mentions, which is one of the people on Mars uh, is a three-breasted woman, and it's just played as like... Wait,
1: is that what the Buster song is referring to?
0: uh, Could well be. (gasps) Let's say yes.
1: Oh my god, okay. (laughs) I'm going to look up the lyrics. Do you know which one I mean? Yeah! Yeah! I think
2: it probably referenced on that, yeah. Oh, that's that so be. funny. I thought they just made that. <laughs> <up. laughs> <laughs> no, no, serious auto filmmaker, Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> each of it. But yeah, just like
0: it's really kind of weird. You don't see like sci fi action films that are that kind of colorful and just strange. And yeah. um, I think the thing that you kind of alluded to a bit there, Annie, is that Paul Verhoeven is almost certainly a bit of a weirdo and a bit of a creep. <laughs> but, but he's so like the it is this thing that he seems to be trying to like satirize and take off absolutely everything and everyone all at once with varying degrees of success or frankly cause um and he just kind of you watch one of his films especially from this period and it's just like trying to spray absolutely everything and um, it really is flinging shit at the wall and seeing what sticks yeah. but expertly thrown
2: at times. <laughs> Sometimes the form's not quite there, but when he hits, he hits. <laughs> well, I like it to because it's probably just all in his mind, isn't it? Like, oh, yeah. everything goes crazy once he goes to this centre where he's getting a, a a memory implant. So what we could be seeing is just this memory implant that he's been given. And it is basically what he's asked for. He wanted to be a secret agent. He wanted this woman who is like the woman that appears later on. You know, it's like, a Yeah. I, I, that's how I like to think of it. Um, but it's, yeah, yeah, great fun.
0: There's also some tremendously overplayed dialogue. There's a repeated line that you shouldn't go to recall because it's this private company that implants memories in you and the implication is they're not particularly good at it or particularly consistent with it. And one of his colleagues repeatedly says, don't go to recall. I know someone who went there, he got lobotomized. And he delivers <laughs> it in that exact kind of like inflection. I think a lot of these films... I, you look at them, and you think, how could anyone take this at face value? And yet they manage. Somehow they somehow
2: they manage. Yeah, it's also nice seeing uh, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger play the Everyman, because the the, the point, he's point meant to be just a boring Joe who like works at a mine, like uh, which is like really ridiculous when you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger. Nobody could ever believe he was just a normal Joe who worked at a mine, but. Yeah, because his his arms are like the size
0: of the man next to him's head. Exactly.
1: Mining is hard work. Build muscle.
0: Um, And then, just to quickly say, the note up here about Starship Troopers says, if you know it's a joke, it's very funny. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe don't have time to get into that one, but future episodes for (laughs) next time Big Paul's got a film out, we'll see what we... So overall, Anna we dragged you into the Verhoeven verse. How do you feel your time has been?
1: <laughs> um, I am grateful I have now seen some of his films. I will probably stop that. Excellent. But thank you for this experience.
2: <laughs> I would say see more. I would see L Elle. is yeah. quite interesting. Okay. Um, so yeah, so the one I wanted to talk about was The Fourth Man, which is from 1984. Like I say, it's his last Dutch film for uh, going into English language. And, yeah, it's great to watch with Benedetta because it's basically concerned with the overlap between sexual desire and religious visions. So it follows this kind of gay, possibly bisexual novelist called Gerard, uh, who is having this kind of hotbed of hallucinations, partly because he's an alcoholic, um, but he's kind of dreams of Jesus on the cross, wearing speedos and about being castrated and things like that. Um, So it's full of these, it's very dreamlike, um, Kind of similar to uh, Total Recall in that way. It's like you, you can't tell—is this all in his mind, or is it really happening? Um, but basically, he gets invited to this little coastal town to do a reading, and when he's there, he kind of starts an affair with this woman who sort of runs this runs the place, and basically starts the affair with her. But really, he wants to have an affair with her, her husband, who's this kind of young hunk, and he basically keeps going out with her so he can get closer to him. Um, but then he discovers that actually she might be a black widow because she has these previous husbands who all died in very mysterious circumstances, you know, boating accidents, accidents where a lion accidentally, ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous deaths. These deaths seem hilarious. Very efficiently. Um, but anyway, yeah. Well, well, he starts having visions about how she killed all these men, uh, and his visions that he's, she's going to kill him. So it's like a, it's kind of like a femme fatale thing. So like a, instead of a ice pick, she has a pair of scissors here. And, and she has a lion. Yeah, all, all right. <laughs> yeah. It's like um, the femme fatale is very much looks a bit like a Hitchcock femme fatale, which means she looks a bit like uh, Shanstone and in Basic Instinct. So it's kind of like I think a dry run for Basic Instinct. I would say actually try this if you like Basic Instinct. Maybe, it's maybe it's fun. But um, yeah, it's very ripe, very ridiculous. Um, it's beautifully shot, beautifully edited. It actually got your fave, and he behind the camera. Um, what's his name? Jean Bott. Who directed Speed and Twister? Oh. He he used to be uh, Verhoeven's cameraman back in back in Holland. So like uh, yeah, so he he shoots it brilliantly. Um, so it's very slick. I think this is the film that really got Hollywood um, to pay attention because it was actually his biggest hit outside of Holland, um, of his Dutch films. Uh, yeah, and it's a uh, great fun, very surreal, and ninety minutes. Like a little masterpiece, I think. So I, I would check it out.
1: I, I don't think I want to watch Starstrip starship troopers because i don't think i will be in on the joke and so i think it will just be very annoying for me um i think part of it is maybe also that i don't super love sci-fi i don't know i don't know it just it isn't really my jam but there's something like the matrix which i think has like on the surface that same sort of like anti-capitalist critique dressed up as sci-fi i really like that but i think it's because the matrix feels like big and soppy like it has like real hearts to it and it feels like, yeah, maybe that's the thing with Verhoeven, is it doesn't really feel they have a lot of heart. They feel chaotic, and they feel like incisive, but chaotic. You know? Which is fine. Good yeah. for him. But I don't know if it's really my thing.
0: Jamie, when's the next rewatch of Robocop scheduled in for?
2: Oh, it's like, uh, probably, I probably can go a couple of years now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe two years.
0: All right, just before we go, we wanted to give a quick plug to the Edinburgh Iranian Film Festival, which kicks off on Friday. So that's tomorrow, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out. It runs from the 15th to the 18th of April at Filmhouse in Edinburgh. Uh, There are six screenings in total. The first film is Zalavar, which we talked about on the Glasgow Film Festival episode of the podcast. Uh, Very good um, Iranian horror set. On a big old hill. <laughs> um, and then another one that Jamie mentioned to me in the office the other day, um, which is apparently very good, is Radiograph of a Family.
2: Yeah, this played at Edinburgh Film Festival, so, and I've heard nothing but good things. Uh, I haven't seen, seen it yet, but I believe it's a stylized documentary sort of telling the story of the last kind of couple of decades of Iran through the filmmaker's parents. So it uses kind of like archive, home video, photographs, love letters, and things like that to tell their story against the backdrop of like the turbulent sort of political upheavals um, in Iran in the last couple of decades?
1: I think it's like during the revolution. I have seen it, but I now can't remember. Oh, yeah, so, okay. But I think it might be kind of the kind of tipping point around the revolution, I think. Sorry. Is it good? It is. Yeah, it is very good. Um,
2: oh, you've seen it? I'm just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I, 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 I'm just, I'm, t- I'm talking on hearsay.
1: <laughs> no, I did see it, but like I have such a bad memory that... Um, Like, I can never say anything with, like, any particular certainty. But, yeah, I think it's that how they kind of – how their lives changed sort of just before and then through the Iranian revolution. She's kind of looking back at, yeah, like, all of these old, like, family photographs and, like, assembling, like, this kind of cultural snapshot through, like, this small family. I found it really affecting. Um, I mean, like, personally, for me, it was, like, quite similar, that sort of idea of experiencing something like hugely seismic through just like the archive of like your own family and what you have left um so yeah definitely worth watching
0: good stuff so yeah six screenings between the 15th and the 18th of april at film house in edinburgh uh that's all from us for this week we'll be back in two weeks time uh if you want to follow any of us on twitter in the meantime Uh, You can get Jamie on Jamie Dunn, Esquire. You can get Anna Heat on Anna Heat Ruse. And you can get me on Peter Simpson, all one word, no vowels. If you've liked this incredibly Verhoventastic episode, please (laughs) tell your friends. Tell your friends who like Paul Verhoeven. Tell your friends who have no strong opinions about Paul Verhoeven. Tell Paul Verhoeven. If you you see him, send him our way. Um, If you've enjoyed the episode, then give us a review wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and other podcast platform and yeah thanks for listening and we will be back in 2 weeks time bye
1: bye, bye.